Okay, there are saints, Matthew chapter 27. And tonight we continue beginning in verse 51. Let's bow our hearts. Father, so often as we journey through life, as we come into this place, as we look to you, as we look to your word, there are so many times where in life it looks like we're losing. And the events are there where there's tribulation, there's trials, there's sadness, there's suffering. And yet, Father, no matter what happens, if we were to look around us, we would see signs that you are here, signs that you are present, signs that your power is available. And, and Father, that you are holding us and walking with us. And there is a hope, there is a joy, there is a peace, and there's a victory. And so, Father, it is so often that when we look to the Psalms and, and the psalmist begins to cry out in despair, and, Lord, with situations that are coming upon them. And then you remind them of you. And as they become aware of you, then the, the whole song changes to, God, you are so good. And your glory is, is just to be praised, who you are and what you do. So, Father, teach us those things. Teach us what, what it is to see you, um, Lord, in, in the the trials and tribulations, to understand that you are here, to understand that you are, are watching over us, that, Father, the, the real, true victory is the last page. And there you have won, there we are redeemed, and there we are forever in heaven with you. But, Father, just sometimes as the, the time goes on, we struggle with that truth, we struggle with that reality. And so... Draw us to your heart tonight. Simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, saints. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 51. Now, we just finished last week with um, the, the king concluding his earthly ministry as far as our salvation. And what we're seeing right now as we get into verse 51 is there are going to be, and when you take a look at the whole death of Jesus Christ, there were certain signs, certain miracles that accompanied the death of Jesus Christ that will not, not accompany any other deaths. I want to back you up initially to verse 45 because we looked at this where now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And so for a three-hour period, we realized this isn't an eclipse. This is simply darkness. And all over the land doesn't mean it was just over the, you know, Israel, over Jerusalem. It was all over the world. Darkness has come. The light had left. And basically, God had allowed, the, the, in a sense, the, the light of the sun, the light of anything, not to shine upon the earth. And there was this darkness, a darkness as as God turned from his son and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have to leave you. I've got to separate myself from you. So one of the first signs that, that this death of this man was unusual to all others. On top of that, he had on you know, the, the, the sign, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They're realizing that there was no crime that he had done. But as we're doing this, now we see this second sign. 
For it says in verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Verse 52, And the graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Verse 53, And coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And now you begin to see here these signs, these miracles that come and, and accompany here the death of Jesus Christ. So as soon as he now declares that statement, we, we looked at John's gospel where he said, it is finished. He cries out again, verse 50, with this loud voice, and he gives up his spirit. As soon as he says it's finished, as soon as he yields up his spirit, then, verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. This veil. Now, to some of us, as we've gone through Hebrews, we're very familiar with the veil. Some of us, if we haven't gone through the book of Hebrews, haven't gone through the book of Leviticus, we're wondering, really, what is this veil? You may have some grasping as far as maybe a little bit of what it is. Let me share you what this veil is. It begins, if you're um, a note taker, you can turn there if you want. We're going to camp there for a little while. But in the book of Leviticus, starting in chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, what happens is God is, is talking to um, Moses. He's talking to Aaron. And he's letting them know as far as access to come to him. And so there has to be the, the separation where you can't just come and have access with God. Now Moses has had that for the most part, but now with the tabernacle, there's this understanding, okay, we're, we're going to have this understanding where you can't just come at any time. So, in Leviticus 16, the first six verses, it begins this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. So they're referring to Leviticus 10, first couple of verses. And so when these two sons of Aaron came with the profane fire, the profane offering, that God, you know, consumed them. And then he says this in verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die. I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering, and he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments, therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron, verse 6, shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. We see here, because of the profane fire that came, and God is now talking to Moses to tell Aaron, you just can't come. You just can't come. 
I have a standard on how you have to approach me. And what's going to happen is this, is Aaron can approach me, but he can only come behind this veil once a year. On the day of atonement, he can come in, but he can come in after we see here, he has to sacrifice a bull for himself, and then he sacrifices this, this ram for the children of Israel. Think about it. All the nation of Israel, millions of people, one ram. The high priest who himself goes in, one bull. Think about the difference. A bull just for this one man ran for an entire nation, but this is what he has to do. And when he comes in, all he's allowed to wear is these linen tunics. Everything has to be white and pure. He has to remove his high priestly um, breastplate and all of the priestly garb. And all he can do is come in with this linen. In other words, no, no weights, no anything. And when you come in before me, this is what you wear. In Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 11 to 14, it makes this statement. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, being fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So what we see is this. He's allowed to come in, but when he does come in, he still can't just walk in behind the veil. He has to take this, this incense labor and he has to put coals from the incense altar on it and then he has to put on this incense which are herbs and so as he does so it's now smoking and he has to put the smoke is before him and the mercy seat so he can't even see it clearly cleanly he has to see it through even a smoky veil so no matter what he does he doesn't have pure and and easy access to God, he can come in only one time a year. And keep in mind, the average Jew cannot come in. The priest cannot come in. Only the high priest can come in. And he can't just come in whenever he wants to. He has to come in only once a year. And that's only for this short time to sprinkle on blood. And so, and that's after he sacrifices an entire bull for himself. So this is what the veil was there in the Old Testament. And so you have this veil, and, and it's interesting. There's different views on how thick the veil was. Um, but a good estimate is this. This veil was about 16 to 18 inches thick. It, it's a lot of curtain that you have to get through. You just can't come in and, and see the glory of God. Now, God was there dwelling there on the mercy seat, which was above the Ark of the Covenant. But in order to get there, you had to come through, first and foremost, um, you had to be a high priest, not just a priest, but a high priest. And then you could only, you had to wait for the Day of Atonement. And then you'd have to sacrifice that bull for yourself. Another passage to jot down would be Hebrews chapter 10. 
couple of verses I want to read to you. I want to read to you verses 19 and 20 because it's changed now from what that veil was to who Jesus is. It declares this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, why does he call it the holiest? The author of Hebrews recognizes that prior to the temple, there was the tabernacle. And this is what Moses here is being directed to do and to have access to in the book of Leviticus. And so as he now comes in, you had on the outside of the tabernacle, you had this bronze altar and a bronze labor. It was for the sacrifices, and the priest would be there ministering and sacrificing, sacrificing. But there were certain priests who could now go into the temple, and into the first part of the temple, it was called the holy place. And within the holy place, the average um, child of Israel couldn't just go into the temple. You couldn't do that. You could give your sacrifice to the priest. He could then, um, you know, put it on the, the, the bronze altar, sacrifice it. If you had a peace offering, he'd give you a part of it. And so that you could witness, but you couldn't witness what was going on on the inside. But on the inside, the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. There was the um, lampstand, there was a table of showbread, and then there was the altar of incense, which stood in front of the veil. And so you would constantly have these coals that would be put on there from the altar outside. And as you would put these coals, you would put in the incense and smoke would rise. And that would be symbolism as far as the prayers of the saints. So you'd have light from the menorah, the candlestick. You'd have the bread. You'd have 12 loaves, each symbolizing each of the 12 um, tribes of Israel where God says, I'm going to provide for you. The priest will provide for you this spiritual um, feeding the, the sustenance that you need. And then you have that altar of incense. And then you have the veil. And then behind that is called the holiest of holies. So you have the outside of the tabernacle. You go into the first place called the holy place. And then you have the holy of holies, or it's called the holiest. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. Having boldness to enter into the holiest. He says, just, just go, if you will, walk past the priests who are there on the altar. Walk past the priests who are there inside and, and walk right into the veil and go into this holiest where the very Shekinah, the presence of God is. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Therefore, brethren, having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This is important to have a note and to understand because initially when God talks to Moses to talk to Aaron about the veil, what he's saying is this. You have to let Aaron know that he doesn't come to God on his terms. He comes to God on my terms. If he's going to come to me, not like Nadab and Abihu, you, you come to me and it's on my terms. Understand that, mark that, get something where you could realize this is what the veil is. And this is what the conversation to Moses that he had to give to Aaron was. You come to God on my terms. And then the veil is rent. And this is what happens. As soon as Jesus says it's finished, we see here that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's, it's important to note that. It wasn't just torn in two. 
It wasn't starting in the middle in a tour. It didn't start from the bottom in a tour. It tore in two from top to bottom. And it's in a sense, you're almost seeing like the, the hand of God just coming and saying, I'm here and I'm tearing this veil. And so from the very top of the veil, coming down to the bottom of the veil, the veil is now rent. The veil is now torn. And so as that veil is torn, you may think now everyone can come in and everyone has access to God. But keep in mind what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is, listen, God still has a plan that we still have to come to God through his terms. But the terms that we come to God isn't now the Old Testament, isn't through the, the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats. Now we enter through the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's still this understanding that we have to come to God through his terms. So initially it was through the, the law, through the sacrifices, through the blood of bulls and goats, that you were temporarily cleansed, temporarily sanctified, so that you could have that kind of relationship with God, but you could never have that nearness ever. The priest couldn't have that nearness ever. The high priest could only have it for just a few hours, one time a year. But here, what the author of Hebrews is saying is you still can come to God but you have to come through God through his terms. So understand when the author of Hebrews, when he's making the statement that we now come to God through a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We come by the blood of Jesus. And so keep in mind that as the veil is now torn, it doesn't mean that we can come however we choose to come. The author of Hebrews lets us know that there is a way to God, but it has to be through his terms. Now, two questions for you to ponder through. And this is why it's important to first understand what the veil is, understand that there's still a term that we have to go through when it comes through the blood of Jesus. When the veil was torn... Did God stop being holy or did he become lesser holy? And the answer is no. And in case you're wondering, I'm going to give you the answer. It's just like the, the, the back of the book. I'll give you the cheat sheet. No, he didn't become less holy. And the veil was torn. You still have this holy God that is there whose presence we want to enter. Now, when the veil was turned, did man become less sinful? Did man become maybe a little better? The answer to that, in case you're wondering, back to the book, no, no, man didn't become less sinful. God didn't become less holy. So none of that has changed between who God is and who man is. So you ask, there's still terms. Sinful man can't simply come before God. You can come into this now, but now it's through the blood of Christ. And so we now come through the body and the work of Jesus. That is our access. That is how we come. And so while we're looking at this, I just want you to realize that this is a sign. This is a miracle that happens at the death of Jesus. When he says it is finished, when he makes that statement, then when he said it's finished, God says, yes, it is. And the veil is rent. 
The sad thing is, is that eventually the priest decided to, we need to sew this back up. We have to fix it. Now, I don't know who's thinking this is a great idea. It's like, well, all right, it, it's, it's, it's rent, but we're going to put God there. We're going to stitch this back up so that we can, you know, have this, this work where we can pretend that none of this happened. We can pretend that that access wasn't there. And we're going to put this, this veil back. And keep in mind that veil would only last for approximately 40 years, just under 40 years. And then God says, listen, I'm not going to just simply destroy the veil. I'm going to destroy the entire thing so that you will have this one way to come only through my son. And so we see here this beautiful sign that comes. As soon as he cries out with a loud voice, he yields up his spirit. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And at this point, then it says, and the earthquake and the rocks were split. The earthquake and the rock splitting is another unique thing that, that happens with God and his power. I want to take you to a passage found in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, there is that point where God begins to give the law. And as God begins to give the law, there's a unique term that begins to happen, an event that begins to take place. And so I want to start reading to you in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And I want to start reading in verse 14. It declares this, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. And then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Anyone who's heard me read this passage understands that I would love, I would love to have someone say to a friend, why don't you come join me for a Bible study? Come join me for the Word of God. And as you're driving up to the place where they're about to teach the Word, that all of a sudden you see this, this thick cloud that just comes over it. And you hear this trumpet blast. And as you're driving up, your whole car starts shaking. And, and all of a sudden, like, what are we doing here? Like, you're going to see God. Like, I don't think I want to see God. I think I, can, can I, we just do this live streaming? Can I do this on a video? Is there a way to do that? Well, take a look at Exodus chapter 20 and look at verse 18. 
Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now, yeah, that's fear. You understand that if you were to invite someone to a Bible study and every time that they would come, it would be just smoke and quaking and the thundering and you really begin to experience the power and the presence of God, there wouldn't be a whole lot of people that say, yeah, I want to come to the Bible study. They, they would say, you mean audio, something that, you know, toned down so you can edit out the trumpet blast. We want to see what's going on. But this is what was happening when the law was given. And as that law was given through this whole thing, now we see once again that there's this quaking that goes on. And the quaking went on when the law was given. And now the quaking again begins to transpire. Keep in mind that the first time the law was given and with everything that was happening, there was a fear that came upon the people. The same thing that is happening here. As God the Son has died upon the cross, now the veil is rent and now there's a quaking once again that goes on. There's an actual display of the very power of God. And, and so we see initially when God does this quaking, he's just shaking things up. And, and he's doing the same thing here. He's shaking things up. And I think when, when you come upon that very power of God, where it makes this statement, the earth quaked, not just Jerusalem quaked, not just, you know, Israel quaked. The earth itself is now shaken. God himself, in a sense, is saying, all right, my, my son has done this. And now, once again, I need you to understand what holiness really is. Don't, don't think that sin has lessened. Don't think that my holiness has lessened. None of that has changed. And I think it's important to understand that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we as Christians, sometimes we deem our, our Christian walk as it's all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace. The problem is, is people term grace as a greasy grace, or they term grace as it's a license to sin. Grace is not a license to sin. God doesn't lessen his holiness because Jesus dies and the veil is rent. Man doesn't become more holy because Jesus dies and the veil is rent. God is making a statement, none of that has changed. So when, when I'm here declaring who I am and what I am, you need to realize that I'm still holy and you're still sinful and there is a way. The way isn't through the priesthood anymore. Now it's through the blood of my son. Now it's through the work that was done on the cross. And so God himself is making the statement, I have not changed. I'm still holy. And for the Christians to come into saying that I now can live a life of practice sin and I'll just call it grace. Grace is not a license to sin. What grace is, is when you realize you're in sin, grace is the ability to turn around and meet with God face to face. See, a work is, I've spent the last two years sinning. 
Now I'm turning around. Do I got to spend the next two weeks coming back, the next two months, or do I got to walk back for another two years? God is chasing us, chasing us, chasing us while we're walking away. And as soon as we turn, there he is. That's grace. See, grace isn't the freedom to sin. Grace is the beauty that as soon as I want to repent, God accepts. That's what grace is. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Doesn't mean that we continue to sin. William Paul says, certainly not. You don't continue to sin, but we do realize that what God does is he opens up a way to him, but understand there's still a, the path is on his terms, not on our own. When he opens the veil, we don't get to choose how we come to God. God is still holy. We're still sinful. We still have to come according to his terms, but the terms are what? It's Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ. It's, it's he, his body, his flesh was the veil. That was rent. And so the veil itself was, is revealing. Now this is just a symbol of the body of Christ. That was rent. This is my access through the death of Christ. And then it says, and the rocks were split. This is incredible. Now, when it says the rocks were split, we don't know which rocks. There are um, thought processes that are going on. And I think the one that makes the most sense to me would be there would be certain rocks that covered certain graves. Now, let me go on and explain why I think that that's probably the clearest. Why it's not just a bunch of rocks that are splitting. And it might be a bunch of rocks. I'm not saying that it's not. But in, in my head, I'm trying to work this through in the context because what happens is this. Rocks were split. Now, you know what happened to Jesus, right? He was put in a tomb and they rolled a stone in front of the door, in front of the, the, the entrance or what would be the access or the exit. So a stone was, was put in front of that door. My understanding is when you look at the very next verse in verse 52, and the graves were opened. Do you understand what happened? The graves are now open. So how are the graves open? Well, it's either a bunch of angels are rolling away a bunch of stones, or God is using this sign of the quaking of the earth to allow certain rocks supernaturally to be split. And I do believe that these are rocks that cover certain tombs. Not all tombs, but certain tombs. Because it says here, and the graves were open. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is important. Understand that you have now, when Jesus dies, rocks are split. In other words, I believe that they are certain stones that are in front of certain graves. And I'm just taking this in context. So if you want to add more rocks, add more rocks. I'm good with that. Um, you know, just figure out your context of why you want to add more rocks. I'm content just being the rocks upon certain graves. But it says in verse 52, the graves were open and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. Now this is important. It doesn't mean that while Jesus was there in the, as soon as he died, and the veil was rent and the earthquake was there, that as these rocks were now split, that now all these 
people are now walking out. It's not a precursor to the zombie apocalypse. That's not what's happening. We'll look in just a minute about who these saints are and, and what they what they're doing. But understand that there are many of the graves that are now, the stones are now split. They're now open. There's, there's this exit that's there. If you've ever seen the, the stone and how it's placed above the, the entrance to the tomb that most people believe that Jesus was, was at, was there in the garden, I believe it's something similar. But you have a small hole that you would have to kind of bend down and kind of scooch into. And then you'd have a stone that was bigger than the hole. And what happens is you have this stone that travels on a, a little pitch. And then there's a little lip and, and, and then the U trough that the stone will come up and then set inside this trough. Now you can access the stone from the outside because you're pushing on the stone. But there's no way from the inside that you can push the stone off the lip. There's no way that you can push. There's just... No way. The, the way that the stone and how it's set, it goes into a trough. So my belief is these stones were split, broken somehow, that these graves on certain saints were now open and um, they would have an exit. So again in verse 52, we see this sign. The graves were open. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the grave after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So what's going on here? There's a passage that you should be aware of found in the book of Ephesians. And, and I would ask you to turn there, jot it down for sure, but turn to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verses 8, and then we're going to read through verse 10. Ephesians 4, verse 8, makes this statement. Therefore, he, that is God, says. And now what happens is Paul is going to quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And he makes this statement. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. In other words, he led a host of captives Free, and he gave gifts to men. So what happened is he um, basically he took these prisoners and he said, I'm now going to bring you with me. That's what he's doing. Now verse 9, Paul goes on to say, now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So we see here that as Paul is trying to teach the church of Ephesus, he makes a statement that what Christ has done, as you see the quote in Psalm 68, that he ascended and led the captivities that were there in this place he led them free. He led those captivities. He says, I'm taking you captive with me now. And so what is he doing? There's a passage, and you're probably aware of it, maybe not in this context, but I do want to share with you a passage found in Luke chapter... Chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, 
Beginning in verse 19, Jesus begins to tell of an event. Now, I'm calling this an event. I'm not calling it a parable. I'm calling it an event. Why am I calling this an event? If you look at every time Jesus says, I'm going to give you a parable, I'm going to give you a parable, I'm going to, he never uses first names. He says, two men, two men. You know, he actually uses Lazarus's name in this event. So Jesus isn't telling a parable. He's not telling a story. He's declaring an event that took place. Jesus would know. So in verse 19, he said, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And then there was a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate. Why is it that Jesus here says, um, I'm going to name to you Lazarus, but I'm not going to give you the name of the rich man. Remember when the, the Lord said, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. This is the truth of that. He doesn't give the rich man, I never knew you. You were never mine. So he calls the rich man a rich man. Lazarus, he knows, he calls him Lazarus. And so this is why it's an event. It's not a parable. It's not a story. So, verse 20 again, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the masters from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now notice, when Lazarus died, he's now carried to a place called Abraham's bosom. And so we see here, the rich man was died and was buried. In verse 23, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said to him, Son, you remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So what happens is this. We see now that there is a location. What is that location? Remember the two thieves on the cross. And one comes to the point of repentance. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And God says, today you will be with me in paradise. My understanding is there's a place, and within this area of paradise that we see, you're going to be with me. You're not going to be in paradise, you're going to be with me. So what happens is we take a look, and there is, in paradise, there's one area called Abraham's bosom. There's another that's called Hades. And so Abraham comes to this place by Abraham's bosom. He's comforted. The rich man goes to a place of torment that's called Hades, and there's a great gulf that's fixed between them. Now, those that are there in Abraham's bosom, there are those who have already died, 
But understand, they're being comforted. Why? Scripture would teach us that they died in faith, not having yet seen the promises, but have seen them afar off. So in other words, they believed that God would send the Messiah, the Messiah would pay the price for their sins, and they put their faith in that, in the Messiah that would come. And God said, you put your faith in, in my promises. So you now, like Abraham, Abraham received righteousness. It was by faith. And so it was, you know, Abraham believed and it was by faith. And that was accounted to him as righteousness. All these people who are in Abraham's bosom, who are being comforted, they have died and they're being comforted and they're waiting for the Messiah. Now there's another group on the other side of this great gulf that's called Hades. And that's a place of torture. That's a place of suffering. And now keep in mind, that's not hell. And, and understand that it's, it's the closest thing to a purgatory, but you can't be prayed out of it. You can't be delivered from it. It's a waiting place until you go to the great white throne judgment to where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and then he will send you off into you know, hell, which was for Satan and his angels. And so you go to that abyss. And so we realize here that when Jesus now, there on the cross, he tells that thief, you'll be with me in paradise. So what is he doing? Jesus first descends. And that's what Paul, through the book of Ephesians, tells us, that he first descends. And as he descends, we realize that according to what, what Luke tells us, is as he descends, he goes into that place of paradise. Now, he preaches in paradise to those who believe that he would come. Here I am. You've been waiting for me, anticipating me. Here I am. I've now come. And so as he's there preaching to them, he's also preaching to those who are in Hades. And he said, here I am. Now, I'll tell you what, to those who believed he would come and they put their faith in, in God and he said, here I am. Wow, you're here. I've been waiting for you. I've known you were going to come and here you are. And the other ones who did not believe, he says, here I've come. And they go, oh my goodness, here you are. And I didn't put the faith in that. And so what Jesus is doing is this. The scripture now tells us that when we're absent with the body, we're present with the Lord. Now initially, the blood of Jesus hadn't been shed. It was already anticipated it would be shed. From the foundation of the world, it was already known to be shed. And so they could now die in faith knowing this blood would purge them. But until that blood was actually shed, the redemption wasn't there. It had to take place in our you know, mass time continuum, space mass time continuum. Once the blood was shed, now forgiveness was given. Now all those that have died and were there in Abraham's bosom could receive that forgiveness. So he's there for three days chatting. For three days talking to them about who is, you know, what he's done and how the work was done. And he's just hanging out there. And then what happens is this. Jesus has to be what's known as the first fruit. He has to rise first. Now, once he rises, then what? Then everyone else can rise. 
Now, here's the cool thing. Most of the people who were there in Abraham's bosom, God had immediately, wonderfully said, all of your bodies that were dust and bone and whatever, I'll now give you this new resurrected body that's waiting for you in heaven. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. Now, the word in the Greek isn't mansions as far as really nice houses. The word in the Greek is dwelling places. It's where the real me will now dwell. See, the Bible calls this me right here and you, re, you right there tents. But there's this permanent, a nicer one. In other words, compare the tabernacle to the temple. Wow, what a difference. And so this is what happens to this tent, to the dwelling place that God has for us. He says, in my father's house there are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, but where I am there you will be also. And so he now has all these bodies that he's taken that are, are part of what they were, part of, of who, you know, what they're becoming, and it all meshes together. And somehow he's going to take part of this body and make it into part of that body. He's going to just revamp the whole thing. The beautiful thing is in this new body, no sin nature. I love that about this new body. Talk about an upgrade. And so this is what's, what's taking place here. So when he first descends, as Paul said in verse 9 of Ephesians 4, he who first he ascended, what does it mean that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And so he went to lead those that were there in Abraham's bosom, those that were, in a sense, captive there. He's saying, now you're mine. I'm taking you as my own. And so this is what he does. Now, there are going to be a percentage, not all of them who died in faith, but there are going to be many. And I don't know what many looks like. I don't know if many is 10. Uh, you know, what is many? Well, it doesn't say in the Greek. It's not clear in the Greek. But it does say that, um, verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. What this tells me is this. Do you remember how Lazarus had died? And Lazarus, there in John chapter 11, he was there and he was dead for four days. And eventually Jesus was going to say what? Lazarus, come forth. And they were saying, listen, Lord, I don't think you want him to come forth. He's been dead for a few days and he's a little bit ripe right now. You know, I don't think you want that. But he said, no, I want him to come forth. There was a certain point where God says, I'm going to take this body and I'm going to renew it where you can actually come back. And so I believe that what happens is there, there's some coming out of the grave after his resurrection and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There were some who God says, I'm going to bring you back in a sense to your body and it's not a resuscitation, but I believe that God is doing a work in that body, that it's a form of their body, resurrected body. And these are who are going to be the ones who come after Jesus, who is the first fruit. So as we look to this, hopefully now you begin to see a little bit of what happens. It's not just all the graves are open, the zombie apocalypse is coming. That's not what he's saying. 
Jesus goes to the lower parts. He now goes into that place of paradise, to Abraham's bosom, talks to them, talks to the people in Hades, takes all the people who are in Abraham's bosom and empties out that compartment. No one is there now in Abraham's bosom. Now to be absent with the body, you're present with the Lord. That place has been vacated because Jesus first descended and then he ascended. Now when he went, he took everyone with him. Now there's some, he said, you guys need to be a witness. I'll bring you up. Don't worry, you're going to be coming. But I need you to be a witnesses. And those are all the ones whose rocks were split there in the graves. And so um, rocks were opened. And so these graves were opened, verse 52. My understanding of those graves being opened is those were the rocks that were split. So somehow the graves were opening. You, know, you rolled around the, the, they rolled the stones off. Other stones were just shaken and fallen down. But these graves are open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, verse 53, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, that would be just radical. That these people who had recently passed, that now they're coming and say, hey, hey, you know... I wish I would have been to the funeral that you gave to me a week ago. It would have been great to see. How did it go? How many people showed up? Were people really crying? Or were they glad that I went? You know, what would be going on in these conversations? My understanding is this. They would be shocked that they're there. And the testimony is this. You would not believe where I was. I was in a place called Abraham's bosom. And I could hear the torments of these other people. There was a great gulf. There were people in the 80s. And they were being tormented. And, and I believed in Jesus. I believed in what he declared. And I, I've given him my life. And he's my Lord and my Savior. And he came down and he visited me. He came down and he saw me. And he told me, here I am. I've done the work. It's finished. Now, Everyone who was there in Abraham, they all left. Other than uh, uh, many of us, he said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go back to Jerusalem. And so here we are. Absolutely incredible to see this kind of sign that now comes through the death of Jesus Christ. And as, as we look to this, he's that first fruit. He's the one who first rises. Then all who comes after him, they begin to now go beyond. There's a passage that I want to share with you found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read to you just one portion of it. I want to read to you verse 20 to kind of give you an idea of just what it is for Christ to be the first fruits. It declares this now, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So once he raised, he now tells everyone else, follow me. <laughs> you know, this is where we're going. And so this is here, one of those things that are accompanying here, the, the death of Jesus Christ. Another sign, another amazing thing that begins to take place. So these miracles begin to happen. It got dark for three hours. Jesus cries out, it's finished. This veil that the priests now are in there. They're witnessing this veil. The word eventually will get out that that veil was torn. But they're now feeling the earth quaking and shaking. 
and verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the Son of God. Absolutely amazing that they recognize there was something unique about this man and this death. Now, keep in mind that if they were people who had been, you know, for this duty for crucifixions, they would have seen crucifixions. They would have seen men die. They would have seen this happen. They're Roman soldiers. They understand death. And they're able to look upon this scene and say, there's something dynamic something majorly different about this death. And so they come to this point to say, truly, this was the Son of God. In Luke chapter 23, verse 47, it makes this statement. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. This centurion almost has, and I hate to say it, a come-to-Jesus moment, but he has a true come-to-Jesus moment. He realizes that everything that I knew about life and death, this changes everything. And so there's something about Jesus Christ, something about him being on the cross, something about Jesus and his death that just captivate, captivates this man. Now, now, Jesus would make this statement that when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all men into myself. And this is what he begins to do. Even the centurion who's here, he's drawing all men. Once he's lifted up and once they see the cross and once they see the power of God, the holiness of God being displayed, the power of God being displayed, everything being shaken, understand that now there's a different way but it still is a way that is on God's terms. And this is so important to understand that some people and some new Christians believe that now that Jesus died, there's another way and it's my terms. It's still not on your terms. God is very distinct to say, you're going to still come through this veil. Initially, it was through the veil of the law and the sacrifices. Now it's through the veil of the flesh, the body, the blood of Jesus that's our access. But it is according to his terms, has always been according to his terms, and will never stop being according to his terms. So this, this centurion now realizes he's a righteous man, realizes he was the son of God, and he begins to glorify God. Absolutely incredible that this hardened Roman soldier, so much so that he's a centurion, he's over a hundred, he's now the, this, this captain of these things, and as he's now over all these men, he's a hardened soldier. He now recognizes here, truly, this was the Son of God. Now verse 55. And many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to them, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, the mother of Zebedee's sons, and so we begin to see here that these women were also there among them. And I find it interesting that you don't see the disciples other than John. John will be there. He'll be one of them who's not hiding out. Because, um, you know, Jesus would say to John, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. So 
He says, I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of you. Um, John, you, you take care of, of, of my mother. And so we see here that these women and, and John, but it says this, that they were afar off. That there's this, this distance that they have. I think there are some who are, are close and some who are further. And as you look to this, there are some who we recognize. Yeah, I can kind of see that, that this is where, um, as you look to his death, you know, they're, they're, they're there, they're witnessing, but they can't have that closeness. Because keep, keep in mind, you have the Roman soldiers, you have the chief priests, you have everyone there. And so there's a distance between them and the Lord. But they're there. They're witnessing. Unlike the other 11 the disciples, well, make it 10 because um, you know Judas has hung himself. But unlike the, the other 10, John is there. These women are there. And so I, I find it just pertinent that, that God begins to, through the Holy Spirit and through Matthew saying, here's the king and all of the men couldn't show up, but the women did. And, and where, you know, whether the men thought we have to fight or whatever the, the, the reason being, they're now who at one time say, we'll die with you, we'll die for you. And they're not even here. You have the women who are here. But notice what 55 said, the women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. They were always ministering. They were always serving. They were always serving. And I want to just take you to just a moment to realize what it was the disciples were doing. These women were ministering. The women were serving. And the men were trying to determine whom among them were the greatest. I'll be honest with you. I'm thinking that this is the greatest. These are the ones who are there. They are the ones who are witnessing. And then it says this, verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Then when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen, a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. At this point, we see that it's not a disciple that comes and gets the body of Jesus. It's a secret disciple. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And with Joseph of Arimathea, he actually had a tomb. And he had a tomb that was for himself. And as he has this tomb, what he does is he's going to put Jesus in his tomb. Now, it's important to note this in verse 60. It says, he laid it, this is the body of Jesus, in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. What does that mean? It means that there is no one in this tomb. You have to understand that it's not a tomb that someone else is in or something else, so that, that when they go in and maybe it was a different body that was resurrected. No, Jesus alone is in this tomb. 
Jesus alone is the one who's dead. It's not like someone else was taken and then they mistaken Jesus' dead body for someone else or there were like four people in there. Were there four or were there five? How many people? Well, maybe, you know, they don't know. We know there was no one in that tomb. We know that it was a new tomb which he had hewn on the rock and then he rolls this large stone against the door of the tomb. Now, I do want to read to you a portion of scripture found in John chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 38 and read down through um, verse 42. So in John 19, beginning in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as is custom of the Jews, as the custom of the Jews is to bury now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So they had only so much time before the darkness. They had to get him into the tomb and understand it was a new tomb. No one had lain there. And so as Joseph of Arimathea comes and does this, then Nicodemus, who had had that conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3, where Jesus said, listen, Nicodemus, you must be born again. We see two disciples that were secret disciples now come and minister to the body of Jesus. And it's interesting that here his disciples did what? Nothing to put Jesus in the tomb. Nothing. They were there locked inside of the, and God orchestrated. So listen, I'm okay if you guys aren't willing to do this. If you guys are afraid, I've got other people that I will use. I've already raised them up. They will have the boldness to go to Pilate. They will have the boldness to ask for Jesus. And they will have the, the wherewithal to place him in a tomb. And so keep in mind that, Jew, that Joseph isn't giving up his tomb He's only lending it to Jesus for a couple of days. That's it. You can use it for a couple of days, and then I'm going to need it back. And he said, that's all I need. I don't need any more of that. So, but he gives him the tomb. And so through this now, it's a new tomb on which no one had um, laid. And you have this rock that's now rolled against the door of the tomb. And then they leave. Now, verse 61 and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So keep in mind what's happening is everyone's now left, everyone's left, everyone's left. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are there and they follow Joseph and Nicodemus to where they bury the body of Jesus. So they know where it is. And so they, they see Jesus being put into the tomb. They see you know Joseph and Nicodemus carrying him down going the short distance to this tomb, putting him into the tomb, and then rolling the stone. And so they're now aware, and they're sitting just a little ways opposite of the tomb. 
verse 62, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. So we see here that now the chief priests are saying, okay, we need to come on the day following the preparation. They now go to Pilate and they're saying this, verse 63, Sir, we remember while he was alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Now, what did they accuse him of? They said one thing, destroy this temple. I will destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. They knew what happened. They knew that his actual quote was, he said, not I will destroy this temple, but he says, destroy this temple and then I will raise it in three days. And so now I will rebuild the temple. He didn't say I'm going to destroy it, but if you destroy this temple, I will raise it in three days. And they're aware now, this is after three days I will rise. They knew who he was. They knew his claims. And now they're concerned about what? They're concerned about death. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who are concerned about death. They're, they're like, oh my goodness, when I die, what's going to happen? I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of this. I don't want to die. And, and I mean, think about how panicked the world is about death. Last year, it was all about what? We're so afraid of death, we're going to close everybody down, lock everybody in their houses so that no one could die. This is what they're doing. And we're going to you know, put all these things in place so that no one can die. And yet Jesus had said, listen, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? And so with that same degree that the world is terrified of the physical death, and, and they're, they're doing everything they can to try to avoid a physical death. And they're actually getting in your face to say, put on a mask so that I don't get a physical death. Put on you know, hand wash so that I don't get a physical death. Don't touch this. Stay six feet away, eight feet away, ten feet away. How far away, you know, just so that I don't experience death. And what they're trying to say is, I want to prevent death. And what we need to do is have that same gumption to say, listen, physical death is nothing. I want to invade your space and I want to be this, this, this Karen in your life to say, I don't want you to have a spiritual death. I want you to accept Jesus Christ and his work. And if you believe in him, you'll never die. Now, I'll tell you what, there were a whole lot of people in this place called paradise. Paradise was filled in two sections. One was Abraham's bosom. One was Hades. Now, Jesus came to paradise, and he took just a small portion of them with him to heaven. The rest are there for torment, and they're going to have a great way of throwing judgment, and they're going to wind up in hell. I don't want you to be in that place. I want you to be able to know that as soon as you breathe your last here, you open your eyes and you're breathing anew in heaven with your Father in heaven. This is what we do. And so we see that people are terrified of death. And yet we get to tell them, you don't have to be afraid of death because I'm going I'm to tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never die. You will never see death. Now, what I love with the New Testament about Christians is what? They slept. And then we go to sleep here, we wake up and we're home. This is what it is. But they're terrified of death. Now understand, they realize something. 
that Jesus says death has no power. Death has no power. Jesus has conquered death. And this is where it's so important to realize that out of all the things that can transpire, the one thing that we do recognize is that Jesus, I'm the one that has the power. I want to give you one verse, jot it down, found in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is making this statement now John, he says, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. And he says in, in verse 18, I am, I am him who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. Do you understand that Jesus is saying, you don't have to be afraid of death. I have the power over death. And so as we see here what Christ is and what he's doing, we now understand how Paul could write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 and verse 55. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is the law. The strength of the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is this is the point where we celebrate the the, the putting off of this tent and getting into our true home. And so they're now panicking, and they realize death isn't it. And they're saying, we, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. And now they're concerned about what is going to happen. And so what I love is this. Therefore, they said, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, understand what he's thinking. He's thinking these disciples could come and get the body of Jesus. <laughs> these disciples are hiding behind a locked door. They're not venturing out. When Jesus comes, he approaches what? Goes into the locked door. He goes into this room with the locked door. He's like, hey, hi guys, here I am. They're not coming out, but the chief priest said, well, what if they do? If he's risen, the last deception will be worse than the first. They are concerned that once the word gets out, if Jesus is risen, every lie they've ever said is now wide open. Everything they lied about Jesus, everything that they said about themselves and their own religion is now wide open. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Now, this is hilarious. I'm going to give you Lowe's translation. He says, you have a guard, go your way, but nothing's going to work. Make it as secure as you know how. The translation is, nothing's going to work. He's letting them know this isn't there. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. 
Now, keep in mind, we've already talked about how they had Roman soldiers that were there given to them for uh, um, an attachment during the Passover, so the high priest would keep control. They also now have a authority of a signet where they will put a, a, a rope on one side of the, um, the, the tomb and they will seal it with wax, which is authority. They will then carry that rope to the other side and they will seal it so you can't lift it over the rock, you can't break the seal. Under the pain of death, no one is allowed to break the seal. So they sealed the, 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 the stone so it, you can't break the seal. So keep in mind that there's this government authority. There is the, the stone, which is a physical authority. They're the chief priest who puts a guard being the political authority. You understand all these things are saying, you're in here, you're in here, you're in here. <laughs> He's God. You don't have to say anything more than that. So they, they went through and they stealed the... the they made the tomb secure. Now, now made it. I want to. I want to just tell you. Go up to the last verse and understand. They made it secure as they knew how. In other words, it's not going to work. But I love the effort. You got to give them at least kudos for effort. They're doing everything they can. But understand that they are so concerned about the death of this man. Now, they're not concerned about the death of other men. They're concerned about the death. You understand this is another sign to who Jesus is. And another sign to realize that when that stone is rolled away, we'll probably get to that next Monday. When that stone is rolled away, that they're going to realize that, that Jesus could not do that from the end. He died. He was dead. He was buried for three days. He was dead. And then the stone will be rolled away. The angels will move it. They'll sit upon it. And the tomb will be open. Not for Jesus to come out, but for others to look in. And, and so the, the witness of what we're seeing here is going to be absolutely powerful. But once again, realize this is one more sign to how this death of this man is different than all other deaths. Because... They have the, the religious authority, the political authority, and the physical, where it says, this grave is sealed. And what was cool about it is this. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was still sealed. Jesus had left. He was already in the resurrected body. He is the first fruits. This body that goes into locked rooms and disappears... That's a great body. He, you know, so this is the kind that we're going to be getting. And so understand what's happening here. That there's just sign after sign after sign saying this death. This death is different than all deaths. And we understand what? Beyond the physical signs, there's a spiritual implication that this death is beyond all death. Because this, this death here takes away the sins of the world. The sins of the world. On the hand ring of the crown that was against him, he's taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Forgiveness is here. And, and when he said it's done, it's done. And now what we're seeing is through, through all this concern about his death, his death, his death. All this here does is make chapter 28 even more of a punch in the nose 
to these religious leaders. Like everything they did, nothing seems to work. And so they're just simply defeated. But you have to understand, they're fighting against God. And anytime you fight against God, you're going to lose. And, and so keep in mind that where this may look like defeat, may look like they have power, may look like they have authority, we know chapter 28 is coming. We know that they have nothing. And so I think it's important for us that when we go through situations in life and we think defeat, 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 don't worry. There's another chapter to your life. There's another chapter to my life. And understand, we always go to the last chapter. The last chapter of the book where God wins and we are forever, forever, forever in heaven with Him. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we are so grateful for just this portion of Scripture, for Your heart, for You teaching us and showing us an understanding of what it is that is going on. And there's not just this physical of what's happening, but Lord, there was a spiritual. There was a shaking up of paradise, Lord, as you would go and, and approach those who died in faith and those who had died rejecting you. And Father, you would bring and empty out Abraham's bosom. What an incredible thing that you would do. And they would come and they would witness and they would come and they would testify. And Lord, we are so grateful that we can be those who testify that Jesus the grave did not hold you down. And nor could the grave hold those that had died. That you allowed to raise and come back to Jerusalem. And Lord, we're grateful because we know the grave has no hold on us. It doesn't. It is a temporary holding place for a tent. But it's not a holding place for us. But we are absent with this body. We are going to be present with you. And you're going to then bring this body and, and bring it and make a brand new, eternal dwelling for the real us. That we can worship you forever and ever. Continue to teach us, draw us, that we don't have to fear death. And we can tell the world they don't have to fear death because you've given us victory. We have life with you. Help us proclaim that truth. While all these people are worried about a physical death, we're concerned about a spiritual death. We don't want them to die in the same way that they don't want us to die. But we know that there's only one thing to do. It's the blood of Jesus. We have to receive that cleansing blood. It was boldness, Lord, to declare those truths. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.